Hey there, listeners. This is Rod Gerardo, research resident at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And whether you're watching us on YouTube, listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, the best way to listen is on the Stay Current Pediatric Surgery app. It's brought to you by Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, Children's Mercy at Kansas City, and the Journal of Pediatric Surgery. It's in the Apple App Store, it's in the Google Play Store. Download it today, but until then, enjoy the episode. Is there anything that will make a pediatric surgery fellow more excited than the opportunity to do a tracheoesophageal fistula repair? Okay, well maybe like free pizza in the surgeon's lounge or something like that. But otherwise, this is one of the bread and butter pediatric surgery thoracic cases. So we're gonna talk about it today with some experts from the Aero Digestive Center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. This is from a webinar this past year with Dr. Mike Rutter, Dr. Aaron Garrison, Dr. Dan Von Allman, and of course, Dr. Todd Ponsky. So without further ado, here's Dr. Garrison with a case. So our first case is a term baby who weighs uh, three and a half kilos, who nurses notice starts spitting up with feeds. And as you can see from the x-ray there, the Rapogel coils in the esophagus. Um, the other important thing is that there is distal bowel gas. Okay, okay, hold on, let's get this straight. So you have a newborn who is spitting up feeds, nurse can't pass a Rapogel, and now you get this x-ray that shows distal bowel gas. This is, say it with me, esophageal atresia with a tracheoesophageal fistula. What do we do next? So uh, our protocol here, and maybe Dr. Rutter wants to go through the bronch, because we, we have our ENT colleagues do uh, rigid bronch for every uh, TEF. Here is a sample video of a rigid bronchoscopy on a patient with a TEF. While you're watching it, think to yourself, what is the information we're trying to get from this pre-op bronch? Then they can give us information about the degree of compression of the airway, how much malacia can we expect? Uh, we'll get into whether that's something we should address at the time of surgery. Um, and also, where's the fistula? That really can um, help you figure out how much tension is going to be on your anastomosis. And the ENT on this webinar was Dr. Mike Rutter. Here he is. And so what we try to do is firstly find the fistula if we can, and we usually can, cannulate it just, um, and this is using a Bugby cautery as a probe. So three French, it's skinny, it's blunt-ended, and you can bend the tip of it if you need to. And like Dr. Garrison said, they're looking for malacia, compression, where the fistula is, and one more thing. And usually probing for a laryngeal cleft up front. Keep in mind, this was a live online webinar. So questions were coming in hot. So here's Todd trying to manage the chat box. Somebody who, who uh, you know, just doesn't know anything about esophageal atresia. I'm so sorry, Dr. David Vanderzee has uh, <laughs> <laughs> a question. Uh, David wants to know, do you do rigid or flexible bronchoscopy? For these kids, we tend to go rigid. And so this is usually an ENT rigid bronchoscopy 
Um, the reason is that while pulmonaries very good at looking and appreciating malacia, they are not good at looking at the posterior glottis. And so laryngeal clefts are not reliably diagnosable with a flexible bronchoscopy. And if you use the rigid bronch, then you have more tools if you have to pass a catheter or something like that. So the pre-op bronch is gonna be rigid with ENT, but that doesn't mean pulmonary and their really fancy flexible bronchs are like totally gone by the wayside. Subsequent follow-up scopes, we usually do it as a combination with both ENT and pulmonology. Ben has another question. He says, do you use a rigid bronch with a ventilating bronchoscope or not? We typically use a Hopkins rod endoscope. And so this video is with a Hopkins rod endoscope. In other words, it's the telescope that is inside the ventilating bronchoscope. We often will have an endotracheal tube loaded on it so we can place the tip of the endotracheal tube proximal or distal to the tracheoesophageal fistula. That way you know exactly where the tip of the tube is. That's helpful for anesthesia. If we do use a ventilating bronchoscope for a proximal fistula, we'll actually sometimes use a ventilating tracheoscope. That's like a bronchoscope, but it doesn't have the side ports. So you can actually ventilate the child even though the upper ports are above the larynx. Now they make these or... Or you can make one yourself by taking a bronchoscope and a bit of tape and taping up the side ports. So you can make a homemade one quite easily. All right, so we have a patient who presented with a really textbook story for tracheoesophageal fistula. Then we did our pre-op rigid bronchoscopy with ENT. So we figured out where this fistula is now we're gonna start thinking about the surgical approach. So here's Dr. Garrison. Dr. Rothenberg has really kind of refined this. And I think those who are just starting to do it, probably the biggest thing I see is that they aren't prone enough. So as he has shown in this picture, really having the baby semi-prone is, is crucial to be able to get exposure. All right, let's talk about some anatomy. Just remembering that the esophagus is in the posterior mediastinum followed by the vagus nerve and that azagous vein really is your, your target for um, where the distal fistula is in a type C. Um, following that racing stripe um, of the vagus nerve can, can help quite a bit. All right, next we're gonna watch this video of a thoracoscopic approach to a TEF repair. Here's the first part. You can see that they are dissecting out the azagous vein. I was not uh, initially a fan of the scope, honestly, because this was a more comfortable operation um, open and doing it uh, with the thoracotomy, I felt more in control. And uh, as much as I hate to admit it, Todd is the one who kind of got me uh, more comfortable doing this and really getting the benefit of the exposure. Um, you really feel like it's, I really feel now like it's a less traumatic um, dissection, just being able to mobilize the Proximal pouch, I think, is a little bit easier when um, when you're doing this with the scope. Um, so this is us just taking the distal fistula with a couple clips. I know some people don't don't like clips. Um, yeah. So so just a couple of things real quickly while you're showing. So yeah, clips can be knocked off. You can use hook cautery. You can use energy. Curious what And this is when the you know we have the anesthetist um, pushing on the repogal just to kind of try to find where that proximal pouch is. 
And then Scott uses something cool. What, are the, what does he use again? Bakes, the bakes dilators to, to be able to... In the proximal pouch, yeah. Proximal pouch, yeah. For those of you who are just listening on audio, this part of the video, they're actually dissecting out the proximal portion of the pouch. This, this is something that we always focus with the fellows on is staying on the esophagus on this common wall. As you can see, it almost uh, is like one of the anorectal malformations when you're doing those. There's a one wall that you have to kind of make two, and it's easy to get too close to the trachea and get in the trachea. So we really focus on staying right on that proximal pouch and dissecting up into the neck. I just add the comment. First of all, I love that there are all these experts on, so this will be a great session to get input from all these people who are so good at doing this. But um, just in terms of the other concern I have when we dissect out that proximal pouch is the recurrent laryngeal nerves. And I think either with traction or, or uh, cautery injury or whatever, um, you can we've become more aware of, of that potential for damage. Okay, so stop right there. I don't do this. All right, by this, Todd means that he doesn't completely dissect that fistula that you saw them cut through with scissor. Um, I will leave a little bit of the fistula still stuck until I'm ready to do my first stitch. And then I put my stitch and then I cut it. And I'm not smart enough for that. Someone on this, on this session here probably taught me that, but that's a little. I think in this one, we did a suspensory stitch, which I uh, yeah. honestly am not sure whether I like it or not. It did work well in this case, and now this part is the esophageal anastomosis. By the way, Farid Alalagi says, do you really have to cut the azygous vein? Um, I, I guess it depends. Sometimes no, but I think most of the time it does give you a little more exposure to the um, distal pouch or the distal fistula. Now here you can see the repogal getting pushed down through the anastomosis and they're kind of using what they can to guide it through there. And you can see the suspensory stitch there as well. Now in this video, they use clips to ligate the fistula, but Keep in mind that some people suture, so not everyone really likes clips. You know, when you place the clip, Aaron, um, do you leave a stump on the other side of the clip or not? And if you do, are you afraid that it would it would create like a recanalization? I try very hard not to leave a stump. You really want to try to be flush with the trachea um, and not leave a not leave a stump at all. I think it's part of the, the advantage of the thoracoscopic approach because you can see that really clearly and make sure that you're flush against the trachea when you take it. If you do accidentally leave a long stump, this is what it could look like on the CT. Um, this is what, um, just a couple examples of the long fistula that were left behind. If you look at the top CT, you can see that, um, you know, third trifurcation remnant that was left behind and can soil the lungs, cause pneumonia. Um, or like the, in the bottom picture with that uh, air fluid level and abscess cavity. As uh, others have pointed out, really just staying on that esophagus, staying away from the trachea, because this is uh, a dangerous um, part of the dissection. Remember when Dr. Garrison said, it's kind of like one wall that you're trying to make two? This is what he's talking about. Um, just a few live shots of that uh, with the common wall, with the um, fistula, with the yellow, yellow uh, vessel loop. Um, and the Rapogel putting tension on the proximal pouch. And then just to uh, mention that it, uh, 
if we can, we try to put a piece of tissue of some kind between the suture lines, um, uh, either pleura or even an azygous flap um, or little piece of fat if it's around, but just to try to minimize the risk of uh, recurrence. One of the great advantages of the posterior tracheopexy is that you can, if you do that, you can isolate the, um, or you can protect the tracheal closure from the uh, esophageal anastomosis by pexing it posteriorly. Uh, and again, a lot of this from Dr. Vanderzee's paper, um, careful attraction, beware of the common wall. Um, and then if, if you're doing it open or if not, and you can, or if you're doing it with a scope, you can put end sutures just to kind of cross and bring down the tension. Now, there are a lot of ways that people bring the anastomosis together. A lot of it, like they were talking about, depends on the tension that you're working with. So here is Dr. Von Allman talking about a different approach. It's too bad Dr. Vanderzee can't can't uh, give this one because I think this video came from his group of putting sutures in and sliding the ends uh, together and this is a technique that I I have adopted from them I love this of just uh, putting gentle traction on and keep pulling on the ends until you get them as close together as you can uh, once you get them on as much tension as you think they will tolerate uh, you can wait and then subsequently come back when there's less tension and do your anastomosis which is what's shown in the uh, the video that's playing now. Well, Miguel wants to know, when do you go back? Um, what about magnets? Um, bring them together with a couple of proline sitchers and go back a few days later. Um, so that's our, my approach. In fact, I'm doing this tomorrow, is going back after three days, um, after leaving the ends on traction, go back after three days. Wait, stop, back it up. Did you say magnets? How do they work? It's gonna put in a brief plug as well for just having a team because a lot of the magnet work is actually done by our GI colleagues here and Phil Putnam's just, uh, you know, extremely good with a flexible esophagus scope. And I know that in many places, this is also something done by the pediatric surgeons. But again, whoever does it best should be the person involved. Wise words from Dr. Rudder. So in summary, you had a newborn who presented with spitting up feeds, the nurse couldn't pass her a pogol, and then we got an x-ray and it showed some distal bowel gas. So we're pretty set on the diagnosis of esophageal atresia with tracheoesophageal fistula. The ENT colleagues came in, did their rigid bronch. They were looking for compression and where the fistula was. They're checking for their own stuff, like if there's a laryngeal cleft on the posterior wall. And then we went ahead with our thoracoscopic approach making sure that the patient is a little bit more prone than you think. First, you're gonna dissect out the azygous vein. Some people ligate it, some people don't. Then you want to take the actual fistula, and again, you have options. Some people clip it, some people suture it. Some people leave a suspensory stitch, or Todd just doesn't cut it all the way until he's totally ready. Next, you dissect out the proximal pouch, making sure to stay on that wall of the esophagus and knowing that that common wall can get really hairy. The last part is the esophageal anastomosis. Depending on the tension that's involved, you may need to 
go grab a cup of coffee and wait for the tension to relieve itself, or a few cups. Like Dr. Von Allman says, come back in a few days. But either way, once you bring it together, then your follow-up is gonna involve flexible bronchoscopy, probably with a whole team, including pulmonology, because I mean, let's face it, they use those flexible bronchs all the time. All right, that's the end of the episode. What did you guys think? Did you hate it? Did you love it? Do you wanna see the rest of it? Because you can on the Stay Current Pediatric Surgery app or on our website, GlobalCastMD. We have the whole webinar on there if you wanna sit down and grab a cup of coffee and watch it. And know that we have more content cooking for you, whether it's these videos, podcasts, guidelines, technique videos. All of it can be found on the Stay Current Pediatric Surgery app. It's in the Apple App Store, it's in the Google Play Store. I'm Rod from Cincinnati Children's, and remember, knowledge should be free.